Father, I pray that you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit says to this church. And I pray you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And I pray that you would open our hearts to be able to receive every work of grace that you want to do in us. God, also in accordance with your promise, you say, open your mouth and I will fill it. God, I pray that you would help us to come to your word now with mouths open, hungry, to live not on bread alone, but by these words that have come from your mouth. And I pray you would fill us, feed us, strengthen us. God, we commit this time to you. And I pray my words and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please open your Bibles to Acts 21. Acts 21. And we continue moving uh, verse by verse through this book. The last thing we heard last Sunday was that the Apostle Paul arrived in Jerusalem. That might not sound all that significant to you, but if you have in mind what the last couple of chapters of Acts have said, you know that this is big news, troubling news even. Previous passages in Acts told us Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit had communicated to him that he must. Scripture said Paul resolved in the Spirit to go there. He went constrained by the Spirit, or bound in the Spirit, to Jerusalem. And while the Spirit was compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, the Spirit was also, at the same time, warning Paul about the trials that were waiting for him in that city. And Paul confessed in Acts 20, I do not know what will happen to me in Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then last Sunday, we read about the final stop he made before he reached Jerusalem. And there, the Spirit spoke through the prophet Agabus to tell Paul he was going to be bound and delivered over into the hands of Gentiles. And the other believers who heard this begged Paul not to go. Surely, Paul, if the Spirit is warning you that this is going to happen, surely that means that you shouldn't go, right? No. And Paul prevailed upon them. He must go in submission to the Spirit. And and so they all finally said, well, let the will of the Lord be done. If, If this suffering is God's will for you, then let it be done. But that is a hard thought to deal with. Why would it be God's will for Paul to go suffer in this city? Why would the Spirit send Paul to Jerusalem to be arrested and worse Why would it be God's will for any of his people to suffer? Why would God lead you or other believers that you love into afflictions? Now, last week's passage gave us a start in answering this and taught us that God works through suffering in the life of a Christian to make us more like Christ. By the sufferings Paul would experience in Jerusalem, he was pressing Paul into the mold of Jesus. God uses sufferings to convince us that knowing Christ is better than anything else, even better than life itself. 
Today's passage gives us another important perspective on Christian suffering. That's especially as you understand this text in relation to the rest of the book of Acts. The suffering Paul is going to experience in Jerusalem sets up all that happens in the rest of Acts. The hardships that God ordained for Paul in Jerusalem is going to be, in the end, the very thing that enables Paul to fulfill the ministry that God had called him to. And you, as a Christian, must trust that truth for yourself, too. In the ways you might suffer, that God might have similar good purposes in it. Ask the Holy Spirit to work through these words and acts to increase your faith to that end. The first big thing we'll see in today's scripture is, is the thing the Spirit already told us we're going to see. Paul gets arrested. That's the first main idea of the passage. A life-saving arrest. A life-saving arrest. Look down at verse 17 of Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So James had become the leader of the apostles that were left in Jerusalem, and these elders with him are the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. Then in verse 19, Paul gives them a detailed testimony about his ministry. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. See, Paul was eager to credit God for the good fruit that had come from his gospel work among the Gentiles. That is, non-Jewish peoples. And the brothers who were listening to him relate this also understood this was God's work. So the next verse tells us, when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, brothers and sisters, make it your ambition. Whenever you're talking to others about any good that comes from anyone's efforts to minister to others, whether yours or another, to give God the glory. Make it clear God has done it. Make it your ambition when you hear or read or, or receive somehow a report of good that has come from someone's ministry efforts. Give God glory in your private thoughts and in your speech. Now the rest of verse 20, what happens, the, the church leaders in Jerusalem explain to Paul that there are a lot of other Christians who won't feel as celebratory as they do about what Paul's been doing with the Gentiles. Look at verse 20, or among the Gentiles at least. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to our customs. All right, so they say, brother, word's gotten around that during your mission work out there, you're telling Jews who live among the Gentiles that they should stop living in accordance with the law that God gave to ancient Israel through Moses if they come to Christ. And that's a problem. A lot of the believers here are still really zealous to keep that law, and so what they're hearing is, is upsetting them. Now, Paul was not actually doing that. He was preaching the good news of grace. He was telling Jews and Gentiles they could not be counted righteous before God by trying to keep any of God's laws. 
And he was telling the Gentiles that simple faith in Christ was enough. It was all that was needed to be fully righteous before God, fully forgiven, fully included in God's people. And so Gentiles who came to Christ, they did not need to start keeping the law that God gave to Israel through Moses about circumcision, uh, about which foods could be eaten or not. But whether Jews who came to Christ wanted to continue doing those things after trusting in Christ, Paul, Paul left that as a matter of personal conviction and conscience. That keeping those laws could be done to the glory of God from the heart of one who trusted in Christ alone for salvation, and, and keeping those kinds of regulations could also be set aside and not done for the glory of God from the heart of one who was trusting alone in Christ for salvation. So Paul was not actively teaching Jews they needed to give up these things in order to follow Christ, but people in town were believing the lie, and that put Paul in danger. And so in verse 22, the brothers posed this question, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. And so now they propose a plan to rescue Paul from these rumors. Look at verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Okay, so four Christians in town had taken upon themselves a, a Nazarite vow, as described in the Law of Moses in Numbers chapter 6. And what that was is, is that uh, Jews would voluntarily abstain from strong drink and from cutting their hair for a period of time to especially consecrate themselves to God during, during such time. And then at the end of this period, they would cut their hair and bring an offering in the temple. And so what's being proposed for Paul is that he goes to the temple and, and pays for the offering of these guys and also joins with them in, in some of the purification rituals that they would go through at the temple. And the idea was that if Paul participated with them as they worshipped God in this way in accordance with the law of Moses that that would prove Paul was not against Jewish Christians living in orderly observance of the law of Moses. You get the plan? All right, well, after proposing this plan, what the elders do next is they reassure Paul. Don't get the wrong idea by this. We're still very much wholeheartedly in agreement with you about the free gospel of grace, about righteousness in Christ apart from the law, about the freedom Gentiles have, to not come under the law of Moses. And so in verse 25, they remind Paul, now as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Well, that happened back in chapter 15. They sent this letter, all the apostles in Jerusalem and the elders, that they gave their judgment in this letter that Paul's right. Paul was right to tell the Gentiles that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the Jews were too. So the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised to be saved. They didn't need to live in the Mosaic law to live as God's people. So, so they're reassuring him, Paul, we're still with you. 
Remember, we didn't write to the Gentiles to tell them to keep the law. We wrote to them to, to tell them just to keep from sinning in compromising ways with the pagan culture around them and to ask them just to keep from some, some practices that would be especially offensive to Jewish Christians, like eating meat that didn't have the blood drained out of it, just for the sake of Christian love and fellowship in the body of Christ with the Jews who lived among them in the church. Okay, so now that Paul has this reassurance, we're still on the same page about the gospel, Paul agrees to this plan. Look at verse 26. Then Paul, he did it. He took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, was this, was this a very good plan? Despite the good-hearted intentions of it, verse Verse 27 is going to show us it went horribly wrong. Sending Paul in to spend all this time in the temple, that was sending him into the lion's den. In verse 27, the, the lions found him. That verse says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone, everywhere, Against the people, us, the Jews, and against the law, and against this place, the temple. Moreover, he, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place. All right, these charges are serious against Paul. These are the same charges that were leveled against Stephen in Acts 6 before he was stoned to death. Now, those charges weren't true, but, but at least... You could say they were twisted half-truths. But not, not the second half of verse 28, that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. That, that had no connection to reality. Verse 29 tells us that. It says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, a Gentile, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, Paul would not have brought this man into the no Gentiles allowed restricted area of the, of the old Jerusalem temple because he wouldn't want to get his friend killed. In the temple complex, there was an outer court where the Gentiles were allowed to go. That's sometimes called the court of the Gentiles. And then there was an inner court you could think of as the temple proper where only Jews could go. And then inside that, the, the holy place and then the holy of holies. But separating this court of the Gentiles from, from the inner court, there was a four and a half foot wall all the way around it, and written on it in both Greek and Latin, at regular intervals, was this warning. And, and archaeologists have, have found remnants of this warning. It said, No foreigner, Gentile, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. All right, you see the charges they're yelling against Paul are serious. Uh, the, these charges can whip up the Jewish crowd in a hurry. And they did. Look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Why, why did they drag him out of the temple? They didn't want to kill him in it. They didn't want to defile the holy place by shedding the blood of Paul 
in it. That, that same scene, that kind of thing, shows up in some Old Testament narratives as well. Now, isn't that ironic? As they're about to commit murder, they drag the man out of the temple to preserve the sanctity of the temple. Uh, even unrighteous men can be very religious. And man can be even very religious, even in their practice of unrighteousness. Mankind doesn't need to get more religious. They need, they need to repent toward God. The crowd, right? they, they, they rushed upon Paul, they dragged him out of the inner court in, in their twisted sense of morality, and, and then they did. They tried to beat him to death. Verse 31 says they were seeking to kill him. The second part of the verse tells us that news of this uproar reached the person in Jerusalem who could stop it. It says, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Okay, so, so the tribune was the commander of the Roman soldiers stationed in Jerusalem. They were, they were called a cohort. It was about a thousand soldiers. They were organized in units of a hundred under centurions. When the tribune heard what was happening, he sent centurions, plural, verse 32 said. And so it seems, get this in your mind, at least 200 soldiers come rushing to this area, the temple precincts, to intervene. They were close by uh, the military headquarters here. There was a barracks and a watchtower built into the wall of the temple in the northwest corner so they could quickly address uh, disturbances to the peace like this one. And the Jews stopped beating Paul when the soldiers showed up, which, which proved they knew they were doing wrong, right? Like when someone shows up and a kid goes, they knew. Or an adult. Don't mean to pick on you kids. Now, with the amount of time it took for the news to reach the tribune, and the soldiers to respond and come, you have to imagine that Paul was not far from being dead by the time they arrived. Pretty beat up anyway. And then in the next verse, we see that God is watching over his word to make sure that none of his words fall to the ground. They always are fulfilled. The prophecies come true. Paul is bound in Jerusalem. Verse 33 the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, probably between two soldiers. Then the tribune inquired who he was and what he had done. Just like the Spirit warned, they will bind you in Jerusalem and you will be delivered into the hands of Gentiles. But look at this. When it actually came to pass, when he was arrested and bound in, Jer in, in Jerusalem... It actually saved his life. The thing that all the brothers in Acts have been dreading, the thing that we, the readers of Acts, have been dreading, turned out to be the thing that saved Paul's life. What a wonderful illustration of a wonderful truth of Scripture. That Christian... God uses the trials we dread to do good.
to us. Can you live with this hope? You must. If you will live for the glory of God in this world, where Jesus has has warned, you will have trouble. Now, when the tribune tried to find out what Paul had done, the crowd was too, too hysterical to answer clearly. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him! So these, these opponents of Paul resented so deeply his witness to Christ and especially his ministry to the Gentiles that when they saw him being carried away, they reached out to do more violence to him such that the soldiers had to carry him and they cried out for his life more intensely. And this moment right here is a major turning point in Acts. From this point forward, Paul is a prisoner in Rome. The whole rest of the book of Acts is for years. So the previous eight chapters of Acts, we've read about Paul's free-ranging, wide-ranging, church-planning mission work. Those days are done in Acts. The, The final seven chapters of Acts, he's in chains. So from man's perspective, the plan to help Paul in Jerusalem and rescue him from false rumors, it was a total flop. Look where it landed him. And yet, the Spirit had been calling for this for some time. Did it not have to happen then? It did. Again, this teaches us to trust. Even when our plans fail and flop, this too is under God's providence. And and so the outcome of our plans then is perfectly designed by God to further his saving purposes in us and through us. It's an incredible freedom that comes living with that scriptural hope. Now I say that especially in light of this scripture because contrary to what we might expect, Paul coming under arrest does not stop his witness for Christ. Instead, these chains create opportunities for Paul to witness that he never would have had otherwise. That the suffering paves the way for him to walk in the good works that God prepared for him. Now, we don't have to read very far in Acts to start seeing that. Right away, this foreordained suffering, it creates an opportunity for Paul to preach to the Jews on a scale that would have been impossible in Jerusalem if he was still a free man with the rest of the church. So this life-saving arrest is also a mission-enabling arrest. And in that light, maybe you need to view your trials differently. In the second main scene of this scripture, Paul gives his testimony. It's our second point an infuriating testimony. Paul initiates in verse 27, as Paul was 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? 
And he said, do you know Greek? And he was surprised. This, this guy seemed like an uneducated rabble rouser. And Paul speaks to him in, in formal Greek very respectfully. All right, so now in, in light of this news, the, the tribune starts to develop a, a guess about who this might be. See that in verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So, all right, ancient historians talked about this. There was an Egyptian false prophet who convinced thousands of people to follow him and gather to him on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And he promised that the walls of Jerusalem were going to fall flat like Jericho's did. And then with me, we're going to go take Jerusalem from Rome. Well, Rome put that down. But the, the leader of this rebellion got away. And he never reemerged. And so the tribune thinks, ah, it's you. Well, verse 39, Paul says, no, it's not. Verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So where Paul came from, that, that explained his good Greek. And again, the very respectful way that Paul addresses this tribune, it seems to disarm him. He gives Paul the go-ahead to address the crowd. Verse 40. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and then there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, probably the Hebrew dialect that was widely spoken, Aramaic. And he said, chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, that, that's a great cliffhanger verse division right there. Uh, this, this is an incredible scene. I hope you see it in your mind. Paul is standing at the, stop, uh, the top of, of two flights of stairs that led up to the, the military barracks overlooking the temple areas. And he's flanked by all these soldiers. He's been badly beaten. He had to be carried. He certainly, almost certainly looks like it. Bruises and, and blood and battered and dirty and unkempt to the extreme. But, but Paul says, no, 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 wait, wait. Don't take me into the barracks. As he was being carried up the stairs, and the crowd is yelling, away with him! He's moved by a supernatural love in his heart that was greater than the pain in his body, a love for his enemies. And so he appealed to the tribune, please, sir, let me talk to them. Is this not further evidence of how God uses sufferings to make us more like Christ? This love Paul had for them who were trying to kill him. He begins in verse 3 by speaking of his former life and, and really identifies with the crowd. Look at verse 3. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are, to this day. So, so he said, brothers, fathers, 
I'm a Jew like you. I was raised right here in Jerusalem with you. I was a student of, of the great rabbi, the, the leader of the Pharisees, Gamaliel. Acts 5 said that he was a teacher of the law held in honor by all people. Paul said, I, I was zealous, living strict in keeping with the law. And then importantly, at the end of verse 3, he said, as all of you are this day. I was just like you. I've been in your shoes. And I was like you in the ways that you've attacked me today. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, just as you today have sought my death and, and have, in effect, bound and delivered me to prison. Verse 5, the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, Christians, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's saying, hey, your leaders can testify to this. I was working with them. I was working for them. They gave me authorization to bring other cities to this city bound like I am right now. I was doing this to people. I was just like you, but even worse. You see what Paul's doing. This is a way, isn't it, to get them to, to be more open, perhaps, to hear what he's saying. But I think also remembering this truth helped fuel in Paul the love and the compassion that he felt for these people who were trying to kill him. If you remember, I am, or, or at least was, just like other sinners, and I still would be, or worse, apart from God's grace, the Spirit can use that truth to fuel in you love of enemies, love of those who are living like enemies, love of neighbor, compassion for the lost, desire to witness, Put on this mind of humility and truth where you can look at sinners and say, we're the, we're the same kind of person, you and me. Verse 6, Paul recounts how he met the Lord during this trip to Damascus. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Now the verse said it happened when? At noon. This light outshined the noonday sun, like a flash of lightning all around him, all of a sudden. And the glory of that light was so intense, it knocked him to the ground, and it left him blind. It was the brightness of the glory of God. And a man from Nazareth, Jesus, was the one appearing in it, and the one appearing as the very glory of God. Jesus revealed himself to Paul in this unapproachable divine light. Look at verse 7. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And immediately Paul knew Jesus of Nazareth is not still dead. He has risen, and Jesus of Nazareth was, was not just a man. 
He is the Lord of glory. He's appearing in the glory of God. And the Lord revealed himself uniquely to Paul on that day. Verse 9 says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So, so Paul's party, they knew something was happening. They saw something of the light, but Paul alone saw the Lord in glory and was left blind by it. And he alone heard the Lord speaking. So look at verse 10. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, He came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight. And I saw him. I saw Ananias. And did you notice Paul wanted to highlight to this crowd that Ananias was devout according to the law and also well regarded by all the Jews who knew him. Jesus commissioned Paul through an esteemed law-abiding Jew. And verse 14 tells what Ananias said to Paul. He said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And then Ananias tells Paul, since God has chosen you to be his witness, to be an eyewitness of his resurrection, to be an apostle, what are you waiting for? Get on with it. Verse 16, and now why do you wait? Hey, you can see again. Why are you just standing there? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. You've been called to be Christ's witness, But before you do that, you need to identify with Christ's death, which paid for your sins. You need need to publicly declare your faith in his saving work. Publicly confess Christ before men. Take his name upon you in baptism. See, submersion under the waters of baptism, as we'll see next week, it proclaims our personal share in Christ's death. And, And so it is a sign of how Jesus washed us. His blood shed on the cross washes our sins away the very moment that we put our faith in Him. And then baptism later publicly demonstrates that that has been true of us. Now the example of Paul here teaches us you can't serve God until your sins are washed away. Paul said, I was zealous for God. Even before, he had a kind of zeal for God. It was very strong. It controlled him. But any zeal for God that you may have or feel cannot be a true good work in God's eyes so long as you are separated from God because of the stain of your sins against him. You need to be washed. You can be. How? 
What did verse 16 say? Wash away your sins, calling, calling on his name. That's how. Call on his name. Call on the name of the one that Paul saw in glory. Call on the name of the one that Paul heard, alive, speaking. The name of the righteous one. Call on Jesus and you will instantly become clean before God. Why do you wait? Put your faith in him. Call on his name. Wash away your sins at the foot of his cross. Now up to this point, Paul has shared with uh, the people in Jerusalem things we heard before in Acts 9. Next, he's going to share something the Spirit didn't tell us about back then. Paul had another vision of Jesus when he returned to Jerusalem after he got back from Damascus. Look at verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. I had a vision from God right here in the temple you just dragged me out of. Verse 18, I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Jesus said, get out of this place. Probably not with that alarmed tone, sorry. He said, get out of this place. Hurry up and leave. They're not going to listen to you when you witness. And when Jesus said this to Paul, at first, Paul found it hard to believe that they're not going to accept his testimony. They know how opposed to Christ he had been, how radically he had changed. Surely that would make them receptive to his message. Who could deny how Christ had changed his life? So see him argue along those lines in verse 19. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Lord, how, how could they not listen in the face of such a change? I now stand in the place of the, of the one that I helped execute. I'm preaching the faith that I used to persecute. Jesus knows they won't listen. Even a very powerful testimony of how Jesus has changed someone is not sufficient to change the heart of man. The Spirit must grant repentance through the preaching of the gospel. The Spirit can use someone's testimony to do that, but the Spirit must be the one to do it. So Jesus said to Paul in verse 21, and he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh-oh. How do you think the crowd liked hearing that? Verse 22 shows us. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Paul crossed the line. Uh, they listened until he said this about the Gentiles. You, you say Jesus is alive, I'll listen. You say Jesus is the Lord, I'll listen. You say he sent his salvation away from us to the Gentiles? You cross the line. 
So they immediately interrupted him and shouted him down and called out more intensely for his death. And verse 23 adds, they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Why were they so mad? They believed themselves to have a special spiritual and moral distinction above other men, and that was being threatened. But, but those are the terms of the gospel. The gospel, then, is, is intolerable to the self-righteous. The message of salvation is offensive to the self-righteous who believe that there is a spiritual or moral distinction between them and other men, those sinners that I am not like. But the gospel says, we confessed it earlier, there is no distinction. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, whether Jew or Greek, whether you or Vladimir Putin. There is no distinction in the terms of the gospel you must be saved the same way. All have sinned, deserve his wrath. All may be saved through the redemption that is in Jesus. And if you think that's not fair, then you think there is something distinct about you that would commend you to God above and before other men. And you actually have traces of the same heart disease as the Jews who were infuriated when Paul said, go to the Gentiles. Now perhaps some of you are wondering, why did Paul say this about going to the Gentiles? I mean, he knew this would provoke them, didn't he? Wasn't Paul trying to win them? Did he just have a lapse in judgment here? Like, oh, I wish I could take that one back. I, I said the thing about the Gentiles. No. This was calculated. Now, for one, the self-righteous heart must be humbled to accept the gospel. But also, Paul was, in a sense, trying to provoke the Jews, to have them feel upset about his ministry to the Gentiles. He wanted them to think, hey, that's our salvation. That's our Messiah. Those are our promises. That's our God. Now remember, Paul wrote the book of Romans during this trip to Jerusalem that he just finished. And in Romans 11, 13 and 14, Paul said, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, and I magnify that ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous that, and thus save some of them. I think that's what Paul's doing here in his testimony in Acts 22. He's magnifying his ministry to the Gentiles that Jesus gave him in Jerusalem in hopes that somehow he might drive his fellow Jews to feel a godly jealousy for this salvation that was bypassing them to go to others. If you see others around you being saved and you think, oh, I want that, well, act on that feeling. Go to him. Call on his name. Be saved. And we don't know if this actually happened for some Jews on this day. But Acts does tell us about plenty of other good that came from these trials. 
that the Spirit sent Paul to experience. What will the Lord bring from this? Well, he will use these hardships to send Paul to Gentiles who are even farther away, farther than Paul had gone before. The chains that Paul started wearing in this passage will take Paul all the way to Rome, to Gentiles far beyond anywhere he's evangelized on his three missionary journeys. Paul makes it to Rome with the gospel only because he's imprisoned here in Jerusalem. And so he gets caught up in the Roman legal system and his case keeps getting bumped up higher and higher levels through appeals that are being made until he's in Rome. And so the suffering we see now, full circle, the suffering that was God's will for Paul in Jerusalem enabled him to fulfill the mission God had given him to go to Rome. And we've heard him say that the Spirit had told him that. Acts 19.21, Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and said, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Isn't this wonderful? In the mystery of God's providence, the bonds the Spirit warned Paul about, they, they become like the wings that carry him to Rome where he can fulfill his mission. And similarly, when Paul was saved back in chapter 9, the Lord said, He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. We've seen that. And before kings. Haven't seen any of that. And before the children of Israel. We've seen some of that. But, but here we see how Paul got to do that even more because of these hardships and imprisonment he faced. He carried the name of Jesus before the children of Israel. But Paul is going to get to carry the name of Jesus before kings. Like Jesus promised and Jesus called because the Spirit sent him to Jerusalem to get beaten up and imprisoned. That's what's going to happen in future chapters of Acts. Okay, do you see? Do you see how God used this? Do you see the, the truth? The suffering God ordains for you is part of how God enables you to fulfill the ministry that he has for you, the calling he has for you. It, it is part of how he provides for you to serve him under his good and sovereign will for his glory and the increase of, of your joy in him. Now, that, that's the purpose of the suffering, but think also about the purpose of those warnings leading up to it. Why would, why would Paul say ahead of time, this is going to be hard, it's going to happen, but didn't that make it harder for Paul to actually want to go there? It did. What else did it do? It helped him to fortify his heart for what was going to happen so that he could respond like he did. It helped him to cultivate a heart before his life was on the line to say, I don't account my life of any value to myself if only I may finish the ministry Jesus gave me. It, it helped him to cultivate a heart before he was in danger to say, I'm ready to be in prison and even die for the name of Jesus. Let his will be done. So, so you respond similarly to the warnings we have in Scripture. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus said, anyone who desires to live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hear these things for Scripture and prepare your heart 
get to a place before you're facing deep suffering, do you say, I am ready. I'm ready to be faithful to him. I see that he's better than life itself. I just want to fulfill the calling he gives to me and let his will be done. Let, let the Spirit help you do that before you enter the big trial, as well as in the middle of it. So develop this deep faith conviction ahead of time that we learn from this passage, that, that all things that come to pass, even hard things, are under God's providence. And so he would not allow them to happen if they did not help to enable you somehow to serve him, to glorify him, to know him, to enjoy him more. And so know that so you can get to the place where you say, I'm ready. Your will be done. God help us in that way. Your word is so wonderful. We are so thankful that you do warn us about things that we need to know about out of love for us to help us. And we also thank you for how out of love for us to help us, you, you use and carefully ordain the hard things we go through and the hard things you protect us from. God, increase our faith to, to live out of the wonderful truth of this passage that you've just um, spoken to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.